It is wonderful to be here and to see so many of you. I wanted to speak this afternoon about wisdom and compassion, not so much theoretically, but how we can actually live it in our lives. The heart of the Buddhist teachings, when we really look to the essence of it, we see that all of the teachings are about freeing the mind from those habits of suffering, those habits that create suffering, habits we have within us of greed, of fear, of anger, of hatred, of jealousy. And all the practices that we do, the practice of generosity, the practice of morality, of non-harming, the practice of concentration, of mindfulness, they all have this end. They all have as its purpose, as its goal, freedom or awakening. The question that I'd like to discuss this afternoon is how in the midst of our very busy lives, how in the midst of all of our responsibilities and cares in the world, how can we stay on track? How can we stay open to the possibility of and the experience of an awakened heart, a free mind? A unique aspect of the Buddha's teachings is that they begin and they end with wisdom. And wisdom is not something that we get and then have. You know, it's not a commodity. Wisdom is something that is alive within us and needs constant nurturing. We need to water it and feed it and nourish it so that it grows. The Buddha said something very telling in this regard. He said, when we practice, wisdom grows, and when we don't practice, wisdom wanes. And so the task for us is how can we live our lives in such a way that we are growing wisdom through what we're doing. It's not a matter of belief, and it's not a matter of ritual or dogma. When I first went to India, I, was, I had been in the Peace Corps teaching English when I first come into contact with meditation. Realized I needed a teacher, went back to India to look for a teacher to see if I could uh, deepen my understanding. And I ended up in Bodh Gaya, which is the place the Buddha was enlightened. Small village, but you know, important spiritually. When I met my first Dharma teacher, Anagarika Munindra, he said something at the very beginning which totally hooked me. 
He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. <laughs> there was nothing to join, there were no beliefs, there was no big thing. It was just this amazingly incisive piece of common sense. How else can we understand our minds? except by sitting down and observing and watching and investigating. <coughs> Clear seeing or wisdom comes from this investigative power of the mind. This, this investigation or wisdom is the light that illuminates the Dharma. It illuminates what causes suffering and how to be free of it. And it's so amazing because we can have been lost in unwholesome, unskillful, neurotic tendencies which bring suffering to ourselves and others for a very long time. And as has been pointed out, the light of a single candle can dispel the darkness, the confusion of 10,000 years. We light a single candle and things are illuminated. The patterns are illuminated. Our conditioning is illuminated. So how do we train in wisdom? How do we develop this understanding that actually can free us? In one very far-reaching aspect, and it's really a domain of investigation that has so many pragmatic applications. Wisdom can come and comes deeply from our exploration, our investigation of the truth of impermanence, the truth of change. But we need to go from an intellectual level of understanding to something that's more embodied. Because the truth of impermanence is not esoteric. It's not some deeply hidden secret. You know, go up to anybody on the streets of Taos and ask them, do things change? <laughs> I mean, we all know intellectually. We know that things are changing and are impermanent. The mystery is why we don't live from this place of understanding. Because if we really knew it, if we knew it deeply and fully, we would not hold on to things. We would not be attached because we would know that nothing is lasting. When we truly and deeply see the truth of change in ourselves, in our minds, in our bodies, in the world, something quite extraordinary happens. When we're seeing it, perceiving it directly and intimately, the heart relaxes. It lets go a bit. We let go of struggle. We let go of so many kinds of suffering in our lives. We can see this and in examine this very clearly in our relationship to our own bodies. If we are attached 
to our bodies staying one way, staying young, staying healthy, staying strong. How will we be in the face of the inevitable changes that take place? When our bodies change through accidents or illness or just the aging process. It's so striking to me how difficult it is to understand that these changes in our bodies are not mistakes. It's like when we get sick or there's a disease, it's not a mistake when there's an accident or we get older. This is the nature of being alive and having a body. It's just what happens to everyone. Two great mantras, personal mantras, have developed in my practice, which have helped to remind me of this great truth. As I work with different difficulties that you know, have arisen over all these years, and seeing the changing nature and the fact that things keep on arising, I call this one the Goldstein Law of Practice. If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> Because there's always something. You know, we no sooner fix our backs than our knees hurt. <laughs> and then something else and something else. And after watching this, after paying attention closely and just seeing this happen again and again and again, finally the mind grokked it. It said, yeah, this is what happens. If it's not one thing, it's another. So can relax with it. The other mantra, which has come a little more recently, but which also has served to reduce sort of underlying fear to some degree, you know, of the changes that we might or inevitably go through. I remind myself that anything can happen anytime. I think it was last year or the year before, I was here in New Mexico, out at Vallecitos Mountain Refuge, where I teach. You know, and it's a beautiful place in the wilderness. And after the retreat was over, I was just taking a hike along the river. And it had just rained, and the rocks were a little slippery. I was feeling great. My body felt great. Good retreat slipped on a rock, jammed the knee, that night quite foolishly gave a talk sitting cross-legged. I had to be carried back to my room. And I just watched my mind. It was really at a juncture. And I saw that my mind could go in one of two places. I could start feeling miserable I'm thinking, what did I do wrong, and why did this have to happen? 
Or I could see anything can happen anytime. This is just what happens from time to time. I took that route and it actually became a lot easier to deal with. It's just the nature of things. So this is an aspect of understanding change, change within our own bodies. It's what happens. So can we open to it? Can we relax behind it and then deal responsibly with whatever does arise? It's not only our bodies. If we can truly understand this truth of change with regard to our minds and moods and emotions and mind states and see that they're all changing, it really helps us be with them in a much more relaxed way. I remember from early on in my practice when I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand, came home, then went back looking for a teacher in India, met Munindraji, my first teacher, practicing in Bodh Gaya. And those first years were very difficult, as most people experience. The mind just was the mind. And there would be long periods where I would feel really discouraged and depressed and, you know, things were not going easily or well. And I remember in one period of feeling very depressed about my practice, I reminded myself of this truth of change and I asked myself, you know, Joseph, in six months from now, are you going to even remember that you were depressed today? Not only six months, five months, four months, two months, next week, you know, in three days. And just by extrapolating out over time and bringing it back, it was a way of reminding myself that no matter how unpleasant the feeling or the emotion was, it was reminding myself to apply the wisdom that, yes, this is just another changing state. Now it's depressed, now it's discouraged, now it's happy, now it's calm. This is how it goes. What's so amazing about the, the, the seductive power of the world is that when we look back on our experience, when we look back you know, to this morning, or yesterday, or last week, or last month, or last year, when we look back on our experience, we all know kind of the dreamlike, ephemeral nature. I mean, where are those experiences now? So we can understand their changing, insubstantial quality. Where are our experiences of last year? or last month. They're gone. It's like a dream. So we know this quite deeply, I think, and when we look in that way, and yet somehow when we look ahead, when we look to what's coming, we keep getting entranced by the dazzling array of possibilities of experience, as if somehow the next weekend 
or the next project or the next meal or for those of you who practice meditation sometimes it's even the next breath as if somehow the experiences that are going to come will somehow resolve everything for us bring us fulfillment, bring us happiness bring us peace even though when we look back we see nothing has so why do we lose that insight as soon as we look ahead? It's very strange. If everything that we're looking forward to, and it's not that we should not look forward to things, but we should do so with the wisdom that those two will be part of the passing show and not invest so much energy and so much attachment and so much grasping in the hopes of fulfillment in something that in its nature will be just like all of our, our, our other experience and again as we know and this is true I think for most of us as we get older just the speed it's as if time seems to speed up as we get older. There's one, one woman who once wrote that when she turned 55, breakfast started happening every 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, and it's like that, isn't it? I mean, it's just... Well, can we pay attention to this? Can we pay attention to that experience is just flowing by and not be grasping so much and not be clinging and see that there's actually another way, another possibility, another arena for happiness, for peace. There is a very interesting paradox of spiritual life and that is, as objects of wanting, as objects of desire, arising experiences always leave us unfulfilled. So all the different experiences that come in our life, as objects of wanting or desire, they always leave us unfulfilled because they're passing, because they're changing, they don't last. And yet the very same experiences as objects of awareness, as objects of mindfulness, become the vehicle for awakening. The implication of this is very important. The implication is not that in order to practice wisdom in our lives, we need to pull back from experience. It's not withdrawing from life. It's not withdrawing from experience. It's learning, rather, not to hold on, not to grasp. Now, in Buddhist circles, Sometimes the word detachment appears a lot. You know, as a virtue, as something we should practice, practice detachment. 
so that we don't get caught up. But I think it's the wrong word because detachment implies withdrawal, almost indifference. I think a much better word that describes the wisdom mind is non-attachment so that we can be fully in what's arising fully in the world, fully in our relationships, fully in our experience but can we be in it without the added component of holding on? So this liberating insight into impermanence comes in various ways. It comes deeply in meditation because we see the impermanence on very momentary levels. Now, through the refinement of mindfulness and concentration, it's as if we begin to experience the mind and body almost on the microscopic level. You know, if we look at anything, we look at this, in our ordinary perception, see, what is it? It's a bell. You know, it has a certain function. We ring it, it makes a sound. If we looked at this through a high-power microscope, we wouldn't see bell at all. Bell would disappear, and a whole different level of reality would appear, insubstantial, changing. Well, meditation is like focusing the microscope of our minds turning inward so that we actually are examining our minds, our bodies, getting past the illusion of solidity and seeing and feeling the changing nature very uh, microscopically. Just imagine going to the movies. And we'd never want to do this, but just as a thought experiment. Imagine going to the movies and mostly we go and we get caught up in the story and involved in the story and that's why we go. And the better the movie, the more caught up we are. Just imagine what it would be like if you could see the separate frames of film. If you could see the film as just being separate frames that are running through a machine or however they do it these days, we probably wouldn't be so caught up in the drama, in the story, because we see that Really, everything that appears on the screen is not really happening. It's an illusion of the film, these separate frames, going very quickly. Well, in exactly the same way, when we can see the changing nature on a very careful, subtle level, we still are involved in our lives, but we're not so caught up. And when we're not quite so caught up or so identified, we don't suffer as much. So this is a very special, a specific kind of insight that comes in practice. But wisdom also comes in our lives from attention to impermanence about things we already know. Things that we don't have to go off to a meditation retreat to see. When 
we look carefully at our experience, just our ordinary daily experience, but when we're paying attention rather than being lost or distracted, we begin to see that our everyday experience, moment after moment, is arising and passing away. Every experience is disappearing and the new things arise. At one point I was, I was just taking a walk in, near my home in Massachusetts. There's a nice lake about uh, maybe a quarter, half a mile away. I was just taking this walk, ordinary walk, but kind of paying attention you know, to my body, to my movement, to my thoughts. And I got to the lake and I started reflecting, well, where are those experiences that you had when you began the walk? They were totally gone. Or five minutes ago, totally gone. Thirty seconds before, totally gone. And the image was just like experience being like water cascading over a waterfall. Just moment after moment. Things disappearing, new things arising and disappearing. And so I'd like to suggest an experiment for you, which the real challenge will not be doing the experiment. The real challenge will be remembering to do it. Because it's a suggestion for what to do at the end of the afternoon when you leave here. So if I can remember, I'll remind you then. <laughs> or maybe one of you will remember. But just at the end of the afternoon, you get up and walk outside, and especially if you can take a few minutes just to do it mindfully and in silence. Pay attention just to that flow of ordinary experience. You know, as you stand up, feel the movement of your body and the, taking the steps and feeling the temperature of the air. Or you go outside and you feel the breeze or sounds or thoughts. And just watch. Watch this flow. Watch this waterfall. Insight into impermanence is available. It's accessible at any moment. It's just that it's so ordinary. It's so completely ordinary that we've stopped paying attention. And because we've stopped paying attention to it, we miss this every day, every moment opportunity to practice the mind of letting go. To practice the mind that doesn't hold on. Many of you probably know of the famous uh, Thai meditation master Ajahn Chah, you know, who died some years ago. He was a very great being with a very common sense, down-to-earth approach to the Dharma and teaching. He said, this is very simple, he said, if you let go a little, let go meaning not holding on to experiences which are changing. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. 
If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So we don't want to postpone this application of wisdom. It's not to wait until you can come to the next meditation retreat or some special circumstances in our lives. Impermanence is happening in every moment. And it's totally accessible to us in every moment. We just need to look. Careful observation of some other very obvious truths, but noticing them carefully, have the power to jolt us out of the complacency in our lives. Because for most of us, we are caught in long-established habit patterns of being and reacting and distractedness. So we need things to jolt us awake. There are a few very simple and powerful reflections which have this capacity to kind of shake us out of our complacency. The first of them is something very simple, very obvious, and something we don't often reflect on. The end of birth is death. The implication of this is that our life as it goes on, is simply getting shorter and shorter and shorter. It's like our life is running out from the time that we're born. We seem to notice this more as we get older, but it's equally true for everyone. And again, I'd like to emphasize, it's not a mistake that this happens. It's not wrong that it happens. It's the nature of things. It's the Dharma. It's the truth of things. But very often our attention or our awareness of death seems limited to other people. It's always other people who seem to be dying. <laughs> How often do we make the connection? You know, just that very simple reflection, yes, just as this person has died, so I will die. Do we, do we do that? Do we do that little meditation in that moment to bring the awareness of this to life? We don't often consider our own deaths or even the deaths of people close to us. And so it would be interesting just to look at what our conditioning is about this. How do we feel when we begin to? Are we afraid? You know, does it, does it bring up fear for us? Do we think that it's morbid? You know, why would I want to do that? We want to do it because it's true. 
imagine, and again, this, this perhaps could do it now for a moment, but also as a, as a meditation you could bring some time to your home, just to take some time to imagine what it would be like to be on your deathbed. And for myself, I always do imagine that it's going to be in bed. <laughs> nice and comfy. <laughs> but let's give ourselves that. <laughs> Although perhaps a more dramatic meditation would be not that. But let's imagine that. But, but actually dying. in those moments, in that dying process, as we try to imagine it and embody it, you know, in that, in that reflection, what would we be most attached to? What would we find most difficult to let go of? What are we most holding on to? And a question that I found very helpful for myself, I ask myself, from that perspective, what would I have most wanted to do in my life? What is of most value to me? If we wait until we're actually dying to ask that question, it's too late. And so it's very helpful to open to the truth of death in an open, honest, courageous way, say, yes, this will happen, and to glean the wisdom from that reflection. Because we're making choices in our lives. Every day we're making choices. And we think we're so tied in, often because we don't take this perspective. What is of most value? Where do I want to put my energy? What is most important? We need to ask that question now. A beautiful example of somebody who brought tremendous wisdom to his own death was Henry David Thoreau. And I don't know how many of you have looked at Thoreau since high school, but his writings are wonderful. There's just this amazing humaneness and humanity and wisdom. So I want to just read a few things that were written by a friend of his at the time of his death. He died quite young. He died, I think he was 44. I think of TB. So this was written by a friend of his. He said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. That's mindfulness meditation. What is happening? The mind conforming to the condition of the body. 
The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die, and I set that down. So of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know he had ever quarreled, Aunt. (laughs) It's really a beautiful example. We don't have to hold death in a context of it being morbid or wrong or bad. It's simply what's true. And the more we reflect on it and open to it, maybe we could begin to approach relating in the same way as Thoreau. So this is a practice. This is the wisdom of understanding impermanence on a very deeply integrated level. It transforms the way we live. It transforms our lives. That's one of the reflections on impermanence. Another one which touches our habits so deeply, the reflection that the end of all accumulation is dispersion. No matter what we accumulate in our lives, you know, projects or things or people or objects or possessions or whatever, whatever our accumulations may be, the end of all accumulation is dispersion. Either we leave or lose interest, or things leave or get broken, or but our culture is so into accumulation. This consumer culture of ours. And it's even co-opted spiritual values. There's one advertisement which you may have heard us speak of or seen the advertisement for. It's a classic. I think it was, it was one car, maybe the Jeep Cherokee or something like that. And it showed the car, and it was surrounded by mountains of the latest consumer goods and toys and technological gizmos. You know, just heaps and heaps of stuff. And there was this beautiful couple standing in front of this beautiful car and all these beautiful things. And the caption was, To be one with everything, you need one of everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's interesting is how to one degree or another we have internalized that. 
And so again, it's just the reflection on the impermanence of things, of accumulation, because we do get dazzled by... You know, I've just... I was just at a teacher's conference in California, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama was there. So it reminds me of a story he told, not at this time, but from a previous conference. It was in L.A., and they would take, they were driving him to the conference each morning. And it was down this street where they sold, you know, all the latest technological things. And he has a kind of interest in it. And every morning, they would drive by these storefronts with, you know, all of these toys. And he said at the, at the end of the conference, he commented that by the end of the week, he found himself wanting things. He didn't even know what they were. <laughs> So this is the Dalai Lama. (laughs) But it's just the conditioning, the habit of our mind, you know, oh, that looks like fun, that looks like fun. And as I've said, there's nothing wrong in these things, but it's when they drive our lives, when that becomes the value. Then we miss something deeply important. So we need to reflect on the impermanent nature of all this and the impermanent nature of the enjoyment that we get from them, just to put it in perspective and to see that there are other things of greater value that can wake us up from the sleep of our habit patterns. Is the reflection and the understanding that all meetings, both casual and intimate, all meetings we have with people end in separation, one way or another. People leave, people change, people die. Yet how often do we get so entangled in different ways in our relationships that in times of separation we drown in suffering, we get lost in suffering, in sorrow, in grief. The Buddha commented once that more tears in the course of our many lifetimes given the Buddhist view of things, in the course of our many lifetimes, more tears have been shed over separation from loved ones than the water in all the great oceans. When it's this very deeply primal attachment and entanglement. And it's not that we pull back from relationship, and it's not that we pull back from intimacy, but if we reflect on the truth of impermanence, that it will end in separation, one way or another. Then when it happens, we don't drown in that ocean of tears. We will, most likely will feel loss and we'll feel sorrow, but are we drowning in it, or can we hold it in a freer place? Contemplating impermanence deeply 
And again, I, I just want to back up from the flow of the talk for a moment and remind you that everything I say, it's not something to believe. Please don't believe any of it. It's really all suggestions for looking. It's all suggestions for how we can look and observe for ourselves. The Buddha just pointed out some very obvious truths, the ignorance of which, the ignoring of which, keeps us suffering, the awareness of which opens us to a place of ease, of freedom. So that's the spirit of everything that's being said. When we see, when we contemplate impermanence in the nature of our relationships, it reorients us away from attachment, away from clinging. towards loving-kindness, towards loving-care, for an open heart of love that's not grasping. So what grows from this ground of wisdom as we apply the observation of impermanence to our lives in very subtle ways in meditation, in very ordinary ways, just watching the flow of our daily experience, seeing that it's like water over a waterfall. When we look at the impermanence manifesting in so many arenas of our life, birth and death, accumulation and dispersion, meeting and separation, when we are attentive enough just to observe, to see, A very rare flower begins to emerge, to grow out of this field of wisdom, out of this ground of wisdom. And it's the very rare flower of what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. Well, it's a Sanskrit word. Bodhi means wisdom or awakening. Jitta means heart or heart-mind. So bodhicitta means the awakened heart, the awakened mind. And specifically it means the arising of that aspiration or that motivation that we live our lives and we do our practice, our spiritual practice, not just for ourselves alone, but to plant the seed of the motivation that our lives and our practice be for the benefit of all beings. And then to watch all of the compassionate action, the compassionate activity that can come out of that aspiration. When that becomes the pole star in our lives, when that becomes our guiding value, our guiding aspiration. May my life be for the benefit of all, ourselves included. 
It's a tremendously transforming and beautiful seed to plant. Compassion here and compassionate activity is that feeling, it's that strong feeling, it's that deep feeling that wants to help alleviate suffering in ourselves and other beings. It's that strong wish in the face of suffering, what can I do to help? And the feeling of compassion comes when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering. This is a profound and difficult practice. We may feel that we want to be compassionate and often perhaps feel that we are compassionate. But there's a whole dimension to this practice which can be furthered and so transforming in our lives. It's not always easy to do. Just as we don't like to be with our own pain. And those of you who've done meditation practice know this very well. You know, some pain comes up in the body. How often do we say, oh good, let me come close. (laughs) There's a process. Our habit is not to want to do that. We don't like to feel it. We don't like to open it to it because it's painful, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable. There are strong tendencies in our mind that lead to denial of suffering in ourselves, in others, to denial, to indifference, to apathy. I'd like to read a few lines of a poem. I've I've edited the lines, so if you ever go to read the original there'll be more than what I'm reading. And it's a little ironic reading it on this hot summer day, because the title of the poem is Beyond the Snowbelt, and it's by Mary Oliver, who you know, is just a totally wonderful poet. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while chowding children hurry back to play. But two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And when I read that, it resonated so deeply with me We hear news all the time of disasters from two counties north or three countries south or people living across the ocean. 
Except as we have loved, all news arrived as from a distant land. But how can we begin to practice loving all those beings? It's daunting. Is it even possible? I think we need to start right here with ourselves and the people closest to us. And the great power of meditation practice is that it trains us to be willing to open to what's difficult. It trains us to open to the suffering that's there in our bodies, in our minds. It's saying, let me sit down and really be here for everything that presents itself. So we get through those habit patterns of denial or indifference or apathy. We're here for it. It might be physical pain, learning to open to it. It might be emotional pain, psychological pain. We learn to open to it. One point I was working with some very deep fear in my mind. It's, it felt like it was primal fear. I was on an intensive retreat and just these waves of fear. I mean, it was so primal. It, it wasn't fear of anything in particular. It was just the raw emotion in such an intense form. It, it got so bad at one point, it was just there was fear of going from sitting position to standing position. I was just, I had no idea where that had come from, the depths of it within the mind. For days I was working with this, noting fear, 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 fear. <laughs> Didn't make a dent. Finally, at one point, I was just doing walking meditation back and forth. This was after days. And there was that moment, you know, a little moment of realization. Something dropped in my mind. And I remember saying to myself, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And in that moment of it's okay, that was the moment of acceptance. Until then, I knew the fear was there, I was noting it, I was trying to be mindful, but I was not accepting it. It was like, fear, fear, go away, fear, fear. If this is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. In that moment of genuine acceptance, the whole intensity of the emotion began to wash through. Because my relationship to it had changed. It's not that fear never came back again, but the way I'm with it is different, coming out of that place of acceptance. So this is our practice. We need to open to the suffering. We need to open to what's difficult. So I offer you this as a magic mantra. It solves many difficulties in lives. It's okay. It's okay. The pain in the knee, it's okay the fear, the jealousy, the whatever it is. It's not that we don't act. It's not that we don't take a 
appropriate action, but are we doing it from a place of openness to what's there, ease with what's there, or are we doing it from a place of being caught? Compassion comes when we can open to suffering. That's the ground out of which compassion comes. So if we want to plant the seed of bodhicitta, that aspiration, yes, let my life be for the benefit of all beings, in whatever way. It means we need to be willing to open to the suffering that is there. And we need to start with ourselves. It's okay. Let me feel it. Let me be with it. So right effort here is not straining. It's not struggle. It's really the quality of courage. Now courage, the word comes really from the word for heart, kur. And I see courage as being the strength of heart that can be with what is. That's what right effort is in practice. It's that quality of courage. Something quite amazing begins to happen as we practice this. As we develop the strength to be with our own suffering, our own difficulty, we find that we have greater courage, greater strength, greater insight in being with the suffering of others. And this happens on different levels. On the first level, it happens through the feeling of empathy. What is empathy? Empathy is a feeling for the suffering of another person. And it comes when we take a moment in the rush of our lives, in the busyness of our lives, we take a moment to stop and actually be there with somebody and actually feel what they're feeling. Now, in the course of our day, how many times do we say to somebody, how are you, on the run? You know, we're not really interested. At least some of those times could we say, how are you, and take a moment, just take a few moments, how are you, and stop. Really stop for those moments and take it in. This is how empathy arises, because we take the time. But compassion is something even more than empathy. Because compassion is more than simply feeling the suffering of others. Compassion contains within it a strong desire, a strong intention, to want to do something about it. Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Tibetan uh, Vietnamese a peace activist and poet and Dharma teacher, he expressed it so beautifully. He said, compassion is a verb. That's, that's the fullness of compassion. It's when it moves us to act. So if we plant the seed of bodhicitta, very small and just 
we take small opportunities, can we learn to be responsive in whatever way we do? You know, and sometimes it's in small ways. It's just an act of generosity, an act of kindness, an act of responsiveness to someone close to us. If we want to step up the juice a little bit, maybe an act of generosity with somebody we find really difficult. Instead of just reacting to them, can we stop for a moment, perhaps feel the suffering underneath their difficulty, and respond in a more loving, in a generous way? This is a practice. It's not easy. Sometimes there are tremendously heroic moves of compassion. Recently, I was reading a book about the last two years of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. And of course, it's all time you know, that I was a young adult, and so I knew what was going on, but I was also in Asia a lot. And reading the book, I just brought to life, you know, talking about the marches in Birmingham and Memphis and uh, the work in Chicago, and I was just astounded at reading about the levels of violence and hatred directed towards him. I mean, he was like swimming surrounded by this intense energy of hatred and his amazing ability to stay centered in a place of love and in a place of compassion. And so sometimes there are these very heroic examples of the power of bodhicitta. I mean, he, he may not have known the word, but he was living it. We might think of someone like the Buddha, you know, who spent lifetimes, perhaps in a very different way, maybe he spent lifetimes in a cave, practicing, you know, his meditation, and from one small time perspective, what's he doing to help the world? I mean, he's just off in his cave. And yet the fruit of all those lifetimes of practice with that aspiration of bodhicitta, may this be for the benefit of all, resulted in the awakening of Buddhahood, solving not just, not just alleviating particular situations of suffering, but getting to the very root causes of suffering. And so we don't want to make a hierarchy of compassionate action, oh, this is better than this. We each find our own way. Compassion arises in the field, the limitless field of suffering beings. If we have this aspiration, may my life be for the benefit of all. Or maybe even that's too much. Maybe we have the aspiration to have the aspiration. Because it's big. This is huge. Just think what it would mean 
to really live one's life from that place. Uh, this is a profound, far-reaching practice. We start very small, plant the tiniest of seeds, and water it, and we let it grow. The aspiration to have the aspiration. I'll just read one last thing from Thoreau. about the power of a seed. Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And it is amazing. A tiny seed. What can grow from it? So we plant the seed. We plant the seed of bodhicitta. We plant the seed of compassion. We plant the seed of willingness to open to the truth of change, the truth of suffering. So we become connected to the Dharma. Dharma means truth, the truth of how things are. And even when we're not operating, from this place of wisdom or compassion. If we planted the seed, even in times when we're not, and we're caught up in our habits, as we many, many times will be, just having planted that seed, it reminds us that there are other choices. It helps to awaken us. I'll just close with very simple teaching of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He said, we are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that time, we must try to do something good and something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. So this is our practice, the practice of awakening. If you'd like, why don't we take just a couple of minutes, and I would suggest maybe staying in silence for just these few minutes, just to stay in silence. <laughs> and then just after a little you know, stretch, if you have any comments or questions, um, we can have a bit of a discussion.